From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Dawn Davis, sitting in this week for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Breast surgery. For most women, that means a mastectomy. But there are many variations of breast surgery, including breast reconstruction and breast augmentation. We'll learn about the differences from a breast surgeon. And new guidelines on when to have a mammogram are about to be released. Our breast cancer expert will help us sort through them and tell us what they mean. Also on the program, a yellow crumbling toenail can mean that you have a fungal nail infection. It's tough to get rid of. But just how concerned should you be if you have one? And managing hair loss. When you start losing your hair, is there anything you can do to stop it? All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Dawn Davis, sitting in this week for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. When we hear the words breast surgery, most of us think of a mastectomy, which is the removal of part or all of the breast to treat cancer. But breast surgery has gone through major changes in the recent decades, from radical mastectomy to breast-conserving surgery that leaves at least some of the breast tissue in place. And breast surgery is more than mastectomy. It also involves breast augmentation, which is surgery done to change the shape and size of the breast for cosmetic reasons. Here to talk about the different kinds of breast surgery and what they're designed to do is Mayo Clinic surgeon Dr. Stephen Jacobson. Welcome to the program, Dr. Jacobson. It's, it's nice to meet you. Hi, Steve. <laughs> Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, when I asked Dr. Davis, what should we do? What should we talk about when you're in here? She said, we need to talk to Dr. Jacobson. So explain why, Dr. Davis. Well, because first of all, Dr. Jacobson is a really great guy and a really great physician and surgeon, but he does wondrous work on women with breast issues, cosmetic, reconstructive, medical, surgical, and for cancer patients especially. And because I'm a dermatologist and I see patients without all of their clothes on, I get to see his work and all the help that he does for his patients. And they have lovely things to say about him, and he does great work. And it's a really hot topic that's really common amongst women, and I think women are afraid to talk about it. It's not exactly what you talk about at work or with your loved one, it can be seen as embarrassing um, for many different reasons, across medical and surgical reasons and cosmetic reasons. And so I think it's just helpful when the medical community reaches out to the public to share stories so that way they feel like they can come and get care at Mayo Clinic. So Dr. Jacobson, would the two ways that we're talking about this here be um, mastectomy, which would be the medical application of breast surgery, and then cosmetic would be the augmentation. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and I think that it's also interesting that it's the same if you're using implants, let's say, to reconstruct the breast, it's the same device, whether it be for a post-mastectomy reconstruction or for breast augmentation. So you're using the same tools as far as the same implant to accomplish those goals. The reconstruction is uh, a little bit more challenging because we'd have to dovetail that with optimal oncologic surgical care of the patient and then dovetailing that with a reconstructive endeavor. And so we have to use some, a couple more steps typically than a patient that's just having implants for aesthetic augmentation of the breast. So, Steve, would you like to talk about how kind of the fashion and in vogue culture of breast surgery, both cosmetic and medical, has evolved over the last 10 to 30 years? I'm not a breast surgeon, but I am medically inclined, and it just seems like this is an area of medicine that has changed and progressed much faster lately than the rest of medicine. Well, I think there's been a couple of things that have changed that have really raised the bar and what we're able to accomplish as uh, both aesthetic and reconstructive surgeons. I said earlier 
earlier that breast implants are the same whether or not you're having augmentation or reconstruction. But the array of implants that are available to the plastic surgeons has dramatically increased recently. With the uh, FDA approval of silicone implants for aesthetic augmentation, the reapproval of them several years ago, that brought into silicone back into aesthetic augmentation. Now, we always used or always had available to us uh, silicone implants for reconstructive patients. But once the endorsement of the FDA and the safety for aesthetic indication as well, it really um, re-energized the population to have another option for them other than saline implants for natural feel, look, and so on. But more recently, another uh, generation of silicone implants have been made available to us as plastic surgeons, and that's implants that in in themselves have a shape like a breast, a teardrop shape. Um, They've been so-called the gummy bear implant. Uh, We refer to them typically as a fifth-generation silicone gel implant. We still do use the round implants. It depends on the goal that we're trying to reach. If we're simply have, a, let's say, for an augmentation patient that we're just enhancing a, a nicely shaped breast but just want to make it bigger, a round implant does a beautiful job with that. If we have, we really try to impart a more attractive shape on a breast, typically use an anatomic shape that will help us do that. I have to imagine, though, that there's something that comes along with, you know, what goes in and out of style. Is it that women don't want to have round breasts anymore? They want to have teardrop-shaped breasts? Or is it just that now that that's an option, people are starting to move that way? Well, and I think that's a really interesting question that you brought about style, and it has very much to do with geography, partly about where we live within the United States. As you might imagine, the West Coast is different than the Midwest and is different than the East Coast and certainly in the South. Interestingly, also worldwide, it's different. Okay. Um, certainly, Europe, uh, Europeans is much more of a, uh, if you think about it, as far as aesthetic augmentation, looks more like the Midwest or East Coast rather than the South or the or the, you know, the states out in California to pick on one, one state specifically. So a lot of women who would like to get breast augmentation do not uh, because they think that there is a very short expiration time on when they will need to get a second set of implants. Like, oh, I would like to have my breasts done, but they're going to expire or pop in three to five years, or I can't go water tubing because they'll pop. Can you talk about what the real expiration date is on artificial breast implants and if you can do regular activities while you have them in? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, there's no limitations on activities. If they want to go back to kickboxing or parachuting or whatever aggressive activity uh, they do, that's not a problem. The implants themselves will withhold the forces of that. The only time that, um, let's say if there's an accident, let's say a car accident, the implant would would, would withstand most of those traumas, but it's if they develop broken ribs. That Mm. ends up tearing the back of an implant. That's what really, uh, as far as trauma to the device, it ends up to be something else that's imparting a force on the device, a sharp rib, for example. What's the lifespan on it? Is it uh, five to ten years? That's a good question. So, you know, classically, most people that are out of touch with breast implants, they maintain this idea, they say ten years. Breast implants last ten years. And it's, I'm not sure exactly where that number where they came up with that number. If you look at the integrity of a silicone implant over its lifetime, and you look at actuarial tables like an insurance adjuster might look at the chances of some problem down the road, it's about 1% per year 
that there'd be an actual problem with the implant shell itself. So at 15 years, there might be a 15% chance there's a problem with the shell. On the other, the flip side of that, it's 85% chance your implant's going to be just fine. So at 10 years, there's only a 10% chance that there's a problem with the implant itself. Silicone implants are sort of like run-flat tires, meaning that it's not like a regular tire that you, you didn't see it deflate. So if there is a rupture in a, in a silicone implant, there is no alarm that goes off, and you can't tell that there's a problem with the shell of the implant. So that's why probably at some point in the lifespan of the patient, in the lifespan of that implant, we do some sort of scan, be it MRI scan or some scan down the track, probably about 15 years down the track, to make sure that the implant is intact. Can we touch on autoimmune disease and breast implants? Because that was a huge sensation in the 90s and 2000s that women who got breast implants, especially of the silicone type, got autoimmune disease from these implants. Can you talk about that? Sure. And the reason why that became such a um, hot-button issue is because Dow Corning, who was the first to make breast implants, they... um, settled an out-of-court settlement with a group of women claiming they got or acquired these autoimmune diseases after getting breast implants. Now, they, like I said, they settled that complaint against them, and Dow Corning got out of the implant manufacturing business. Interestingly, when looking backwards at all women that got breast implants, the incidence of them developing autoimmune diseases wasn't any more likely than the natural population. Unfortunately, autoimmune diseases happen more frequently in women than in men, and they also creep up about the same time a gal would think about getting breast implants. And, well, it's one of these things that we'd say true, true, and unrelated. It's true they got breast implants. It's true they got an autoimmune disease, but they're unrelated events in their life. It's the autism vaccine issue in pediatrics. Yeah, and unfortunately, different than the the vaccine issues, that settlement that Dow Corning did endorsed a position that was never proven in science. And while women are very important, I want to make sure that we touch on men who need breast surgery, because that does occur sometimes when men get gynecomastia or enlargement of the breasts. And that's something that men don't like to talk about, but would you please talk about the men who come to your clinic and how you can help them? Yeah, no, that's a really, it's a great question. I think there's two different populations of patients. There's folks after massive weight loss, and then there's just out of the blue, uh, some young men uh, develop gynecomastia or some middle-aged men because of a, uh, a maybe a medicine that they take, develop gynecomastia. And so we have both sort of minimally invasive ways now through small incisions using different minimally invasive techniques, reduce the amount of tissue that's underneath the skin. And that oftentimes major surgery uh, doesn't have to be done and uh, really limiting the amount of scars. So we're just removing the tissue underneath the skin rather than removing skin itself. So it's definitely uh, the treatment for it has improved and the, the scarring has been really significantly minimized. So there is something available for men and it's very effective cosmetically. Absolutely. We've been talking about breast surgery with Mayo Clinic surgeon Dr. Stephen Jacobson. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Jacobson. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks. When we come back on a Mycosis, better known as nail fungus. It can be difficult to get rid of. We'll talk about when and how and if to treat it. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Dawn Davis, sitting in this week for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You might first notice it as a white or yellow spot under your toenail. Then, over time, the nail becomes discolored and thickened and finally starts to crumble on the edge. You likely have a case of onychomycosis, which is better known as nail fungus. It's not pretty, and it can be hard to get rid of. And as a dermatologist, our guest host has treated her share of nail fungal infections. Dr. Davis, please don't break me out on how many times I had to practice saying onychomycosis. I won't bust you, Tracy. (laughs) Don't worry. Thank you. How serious is that nail infection? That's a great question, and we get this a lot in the derm clinic. One myth or guideline that I'd like to kind of give to the public is that yellow nails, the, the odds of it being due to a fungus that you can treat is directly proportionate to your age. So if you're a four-year-old with a yellow nail or a thickened nail, you have a 4% chance that that's a fungus in there. If you have an, an dystrophic or ugly thickened toenail and you're 80 years old, there's an 80% chance that that's a fungus. So fungus doesn't happen in every yellow or thickened nail. So why is it that age makes a difference in whether it's fungus or not? So you've been around longer and your toes have seen more things the older you are and also your immune system changes and the nail itself, which is like the skin, becomes older, more brittle and more dry, which are just more cracks for the fungus to be able to live in. So let's start with a four-year-old. What what can be done to treat that yellow toenail, which is a 4% chance First of all, what else would it be if it's not a a fungal infection? Well, it could be what we call a saprophyte, which is a kind of ground organism that we don't have any treatment for that's just a natural contaminant. Hmm. And then we just let that grow out of the nail over time. Mm -hmm. Or it could be due to stains on the nail, like the child gets exposed to something in the soil that stains the nail and everybody gets worried that it is fungus. It could also be a skin disease that manifests in the nail, such as eczema or psoriasis, lichen planus. There are multiple conditions that can manifest in the nail. Also, you can have a growth in the nail matrix, which is the bed of cells that makes the nail. And if there's a growth in there, like a wart or a tumor, then it can cause the nail to become thick and yellow to look like nail fungus. And for all those different things, whether you're four years old or 40 years old, that will grow out. If it's not a fungus, those different things will grow out? grow out into the nail mm. and and then you can help diagnose it, diagnose it at that point. Okay, so let's go back to the four-year-old with a toenail fungus then. Is that person treated, is that child treated the same way as if it is an 80-year-old individual with a toenail fungus? Almost. In general, when I see patients with mild toenail fungus, we actually try to encourage people not to treat it or to treat it with just topical measures. Hmm. So you can buff the nail down to keep it thin. That way the fungus has a less less of a home to live in. You can also keep the nail nice and trimmed. A lot of people let their toenails grow out long. That's just more places for the fungus to harbor and to grow. So we recommend keeping the nails trimmed and also thinned out. You can buff them out with a file. There's some over-the-counter lacquers that you can put on nails, like nail polish that helps keep the fungus from growing. In fact, as we age, women who use nail polish have a lower incidence of nail fungus because because they use polish and it's harder for the fungus to get into the nail. Um, you can also have a prescription product that has antifungal medicine in it that's given to you pr- by your provider that you can use once or twice a day on the nail. So for my healthy patients and for mild disease, I usually recommend no treatment or I recommend that they thin out the nail, keep it short and use the prescription antifungal. But all over the magazines and on television, there are ad- advertisements for fun- toenail fungus um, removal 
And, and is that something that you paint on it, or is that a medication that you take, or what is that? So there are the topical lacquers or nail polishes that I spoke of. There are also oral pills you can take that are antifungals that we use for when people get fungal infections elsewhere in the body. Mm-hmm. But because the nail plate is dead and it doesn't have a direct blood supply, it's very hard for the systemic medicine to get there through the bloodstream to penetrate your nail bed. And it can affect your liver. And you can have a drug allergy to it. Mm. And you can't drink alcohol while you're on the medicine. And the medicine is a multiple-month treatment course. And people usually aren't willing to give up social drinking mm. and potentially hurt their liver just to get rid of a little yellow toenail. Especially because, depending on, I guess, where you live, maybe your toenails don't see the light of day all that often. True. <laughs> and the, the, the truth of the matter is is that most people who have a lifestyle or environment to acquire the fungus, if they successfully treat it, still go on with their usual life and end up getting the fungus again. So Mm. it's just a vicious cycle. Now, there are specific times when we suggest toenail fungus treatment. If your immune system is compromised, you have HIV, you are a transplant patient, you have cancer and you're undergoing therapy, you need to get your fungus treated because this can cause a systemic uh, dissemination of the fungus, which can make you quite ill. Mm. So we do have certain circumstances when we proactively treat the fungal infection, the most common of which is people with unstable diabetes. Oh, and is there um, the like is is there something similar to it for your fingernails or is it just toenails only? It's the same treatment and same protocol and the fingernails are more likely to respond because they have a better vascular supply uh, and they don't harbor or touch the same kind of organisms that your feet do. Um, But the incidence of nail fungus in the fingernails is much lower than in the toenails. But the fingernails grow twice as quickly as the toenails, and so they're less likely to harbor the fungus. And you said that it thickens up the toenail, and one of the things to do is to file it off. Does that fungus then grow in that nail or under the nail or on top of the nail? Where is it? It usually grows in between the nail layers of the nail plate. So you think of your nail as being one solid plate or like a block of wood, but actually it's multiple layers like um, baklava, for example, or a croissant, Mm. and it can get into all the layers and it can sit on top and it can sit underneath and then it can crawl backwards towards your skin Mm. and towards the root of your foot or your toe, so to speak, and get into the nail matrix. Those are the cells that make the nail. So then all of a sudden you've got fungus in the factory. So I can see then why filing that off is helpful. Very helpful. Get rid of it. All right. And People shouldn't feel bad about keeping their toenail fungus around. It's if you not are something... otherwise healthy, it happens to everybody. And a lot of people publicize these laser treatments for toenail fungus, but it's just a great way to spend time and money. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Davis, for filling us in on a handle nail infections. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force is about to issue new guidelines for mammograms. We'll hear how they compare with the guidelines of other organizations. And is there anything you can do to stop hair loss once it begins? Our guest host has some answers. Do you have a health-related question that you would like for us to answer or a topic that you'd like for us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or please send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with the Mayo Clinic News Network headline, Cigarettes. Fewer kids are smoking them, but the use of other types of tobacco products, such as e-cigarettes, is way up. This is according to a survey by the FDA and CDC. E-cigarettes have the potential 
to be dangerous long term. The problem is we don't have a lot of track record because they haven't been on the market for that long. Mayo Clinic addiction specialist Dr. John Ebert says it's the additives in the flavorings or e-juice that could be dangerous. He says nicotine in any form is bad for kids and his recommendation is for them to avoid nicotine products altogether. And there's nothing like a day at the lake in summer, but in very, very rare instances, people swimming in fresh water could contract a deadly form of meningitis from a certain type of amoeba. It happened to a child in Minnesota. However, infectious disease specialists say getting what's called primary amoebic meningoencephalitis is extremely unlikely. And that's a look at Mayo Clinic News Network headlines. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Dawn Davis sitting in today for Dr. Tom Schott. And I'm Tracy McRae. Earlier this year, the National Cancer Institute announced that the number of cases of breast cancer in the U.S. will increase 50% by the year 2030. If that prediction holds, it means that breast cancer cases will rise from 283,000 a year to 441,000 cases. Mammography remains the first line of defense for breast cancer screening, but there is continuing debate both over how a woman should have a mammogram and how effective mammograms are in preventing cancer deaths. And new mammography screening guidelines are about to be released by the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. So here to talk about that today and the new guidelines and for screening of the breasts in general is my colleague and friend, Dr. Sandia Pruthi. Dr. Pruthi evaluates and treats women in the Breast Diagnostic Clinic at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back and thank you, Sandia. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So it seems every time we have you on the show, it's because there's a new study that's coming out or something along those lines about mammograms. And I suppose that once a mammogram was developed, there'll always be ongoing discussion about how often and when a woman should start mammograms. Right. So mammograms are the best screening tool we have today for women to detect cancer early, and it also is um, the only test we have today that has been shown to decrease the mortality from breast cancer. And unfortunately, it has these wonderful benefits, um, there are some risks and limitations to having a mammogram. And the one uh, thing that always comes to the forefront when we talk about mammograms is that does it miss some cancers? And will it pick up cancers that may never go on to become a problem in a woman's lifetime? And one of the barriers with mammography is dense breast tissue. And when I say that as a barrier, it means that it's harder to interpret a mammogram because of dense tissue. And so these are factors that are just inherent in what a mammogram is today. And with research and as technology gets better, we hope to see better ways to screen breast tissue, hopefully in our lifetime. And, and maybe mammograms won't be the, the best test and something else will come along. Unfortunately, we are getting close to that. And, and now there is a new um, screening tool that is known as tomosynthesis, which is the 3D mammogram. And we've talked about that because it has um, some ad- advantages in helping us with that dense breast tissue, less anxiety for women because they get less recall for mammograms because they don't have to come back as much because the 3D gets a lot more pictures at one um, uh, a mammogram uh, appointment. And we think that it's going to detect cancers earlier. So there's some new things coming along that will help us in this debate. For a lot of women, it's this um, conversation that has to take place. What are the benefits of mammography? What are the screening uh, from a screening standpoint? And what are the downsides? And it has come down to these debates where we see study after study coming out saying, well, there's really no benefit in reducing mortality. But we might catch cancer early. Mm-hmm. 
And for a lot of that discussion, which is really unfortunate, is you've got to take into account the woman's personal values. What does she want? She needs to be informed, but she also has to have an opportunity to have a shared discussion with her doctor. I understand the risks, I understand the limitations, and I understand these are the benefits. This is what's right for me. And I think we've forgotten that part um, when these guidelines come out, and, and it's unfortunate. And that's kind of where I, I still really want to c- hope we can retain that opportunity to allow the woman to be part of that discussion rather than just hitting us with guidelines and saying this is what we recommend and this is what we recommend and that's it, rather than, well, what does it mean to you as a patient? I think that there are, are I don't know, I'm just thinking about my girlfriends, you know, when we all sit around and are talking about this, and it's better than it used to be, but patients who don't know, and so they just will defer to whatever the doctor says, or whatever the guidelines say, or whatever the five o'clock news says, what they hear they should be doing. How can we get patients more comfortable with being part of that? Right, and, and and coming back to that conversation with their physician and, and their comfort level is a lot of patients do resort to their doctor to have these discussions. Unfortunately, there isn't just one set of guidelines. The U.S. Preventative Services Task Force is one guideline. The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology have their own. The American Academy of Family Physicians have their own. The National Comprehensive Cancer Network has their own. The American College of Radiology has their own. And finally, the American Cancer Society has. And interestingly, none of these guidelines are actually all consistent. They tell us different things. So providers often have to make a decision which guideline they choose to follow. So if you go to a provider who follows the American Cancer Society guidelines or the National Comprehensive Cancer Network's guidelines, then you're going to tell your patient, these are the guidelines I follow, whereas the patient who sees a provider who follows a different set of guidelines like the U.S. Preventive Task Force will get different recommendations. And that's the dilemma we're in today. And it, unfortunately, is resulting in confusion for our patients. And what you're saying is your your friends are saying, what is the Who right thing? Who should to? we listen to? What is the right thing to do here? And in the background, a lot of it is based on what they see happening around them. They see their friends being diagnosed with cancer. One in six minutes, a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, which is about 250,000 women a year. And many of these women will tell you, I had no risk factors. I had no family history, which actually makes up greater than 50% of breast cancers today. There's no risk factor. So what happened here? And so that kind of plays into this discussion, which is sort of going towards some of these guidelines is, well, only screen the women who are at high risk. Well, the people who are asking the question, then what is the definition of high risk? When you just told me that half the population who gets breast cancer, it doesn't have that risk. So it's, it is it is a um, challenge we're faced with daily. And, and I think when we hear about new studies coming out, we have to be prepared to always come back to my mind. What's the ground thinking that I have to have about this is what's right for the patient? put the patient's interest here. So a lot of women feel that radiologic techniques have gotten so good and they're so diligent about getting mammograms and the advanced digital scanning and things that they don't need to do self-breast exams. Will you please talk about the importance right. of the self-breast exam? And that's a great question, um, Don. And I really do still want my patients to know that what is normal for them is so important part of their daily life and when something feels different or something's changed that is what we call being familiar with what normal for you is and when something's different bring that to the attention of your doctor promptly and not wait for months and that's what the self-exam has gotten to it's become more of a breast awareness we've gotten away from doing the actual breast self-exam technique that actually is what um the U.S. Preventive Task Task Force guidelines have gone against and said that this 
technique doesn't help to reduce death from breast cancer, which again is the end point here, versus being aware of something's changed or something's new, that your familiarity with your normal when something's different is important and especially important in women who have dense breast tissue, which is most of us under 50 and in our 60s where we know our mammogram is a limitation of it, that you're noticing a change on your breast or a thickening or a dimple on the skin that wasn't there before or that the nipple has pulled in and retracted and hadn't been there before, subtle changes to their breasts that caught your attention that, hey, something's different. And not to let that a negative mammogram be a source of reassurance. If you feel a lump, how long should you, you just wait a day to see if it was just something that was, because it feels like it changes every single day, how long should you wait before you say, all right, this is different? I do notice that this is different. So what I um, say as a standard rule to my patients is that if you feel something different, watch it through two menstrual cycles, especially in someone who's still menstruating, where the hormonal changes can make the breast tissue more lumpy and fibrous. And so to watch it through two cycles, and if through the second cycle it's still persistent, it's time to get it checked out. Whereas a postmenopausal woman who isn't having periods, I use the same rule. If something's gone on for more than a month and you're in the second month and you're still feeling something that's not going away, it's time to bring it up to your doctor. So let's review the risk can- factors for breast cancer because I think the lay public is very aware of the family history and all the genetic testing, especially with celebrities doing the genetic testing and sharing their stories with the public. But I think the lay public forget the other risk factors, and there are modifying things you can do to your lifestyle to decrease your risk. That's a great question, and, and more and more research is actually being done in this area where lifestyle modification, um, such as limiting alcohol use to not more than one drink a day, and drinking two or more drinks daily um, has an associated risk of about 25 to 26 percent of getting breast cancer and you add a third drink a day it goes up to 30 percent and that is a modifiable risk factor. Uh, managing your weight, a healthy weight, especially during the postmenopausal years, is another way to reduce breast cancer risk because we um, have learned, as we understand, one of the largest, um, largest number of breast cancers are due to hormone-dependent cancers, and adipose tissue is actually a source where estrogen is um, produced in the body, and it could help with causing the growth of these cancers. So watching your weight and maintaining a healthy weight ties in with exercise. Women who walk three or more days a week, at least an hour a day, an hour at a time, can reduce breast cancer risk. That's fabulous. And while women are very important, obviously, and breast cancer affects way more women than men, men can still get breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Can you please talk about that for our audience? Yes, and absolutely. About 3,000 men will be diagnosed with breast cancer in the United States yearly. And most often, these men who felt a lump is what brought them in, and it was evaluated, and that's how cancer was diagnosed. So it's back to being familiar with what's normal on their chest wall, and if they feel something different, that's the earliest sign for men who aren't going to be getting mammograms. That's how they detect cancer. Now, what about the breast cancer genes? Do they affect men and their risk? So if your sisters and your mother and your aunt and your grandmother carry the the breast cancer genes, what about the men in the, the family? So the breast cancer gene is an autosomal dominant um, gene, which means that 50% of inheritance, so it could be inherited to a male, a male or a female in the family. So men can carry the breast cancer gene, which could be passed down to their daughters. And so, yes, that is a genetic risk that men have just as much as women. And 
And often when a male is diagnosed with breast cancer in the family, we um, are encouraging them to test for the gene because we want to know if they carry it. And that could be a very actually more related than not that these men might be carrying the gene and it could be helpful to help prevent disease in their family members and especially the women in their family. So in conclusion, with uh, yet another set of guidelines coming out and women getting another idea about what they should do if they should start with their 40s or in their 50s or what do you recommend that women do when it comes to mammograms and getting a mammogram? So, again, I'm, I'm really still following the American Cancer Society guidelines and the National Comprehensive Care Network. These are guidelines that still continue to recommend that women screen in their 40s every year, and we continue with that yearly recommendation. My advice is getting a mammogram yearly. If, if it's going to help me get a cancer detected early, improve my chance of having a better surgical option, potentially reduce my chance of having to go on to receive chemotherapy because the cancer was detected early, are really still important issues for women today. How do you define a positive family history of breast cancer? If your great-grandmother got breast cancer when she was 93, is that the same as your mother getting breast cancer at 35? Absolutely not. They are two different things, and you are correct on. This is one of the things that people think often that a family history of breast cancer is anybody diagnosed. And yes, it's important, but when it really comes to hereditary risk, or we call the genetic predisposition, then that's an individual who tells me that my family has multiple affected relatives with breast cancer before age 50. And in that family history, there would have been cases of ovarian cancer or early onset colon cancer, which could put us back into a genetic predisposition. So those are the ones I often say, what was the age of diagnosis? And a red flag to me is somebody under 50 has a two times higher risk of getting breast cancer. They're that individual's relative. Well, thank you, Sandia, for helping us sort out through these latest guidelines and breast health. Dr. Pruthi, as you know, evaluates and treats women in our breast diagnostic clinic here at Mayo Clinic. Thanks, Dr. Pruthi. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, what to do when you start losing your hair? We'll have some questions and answers for our guest host. You are listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Tracy McRae. If you hear the words hair loss, you might think of the TV commercials that promise to restore hair within weeks. Sadly, there's no miracle treatments for hair loss. We lose our hair for a number of reasons, including hereditary, hormonal changes, medical conditions, and the side effects of medications. Returning to the Mayo Clinic Radio expert chair to fill us in on the different types of hair loss and what, if anything, can be done about it is our guest host, Dr. Don Davis. Now, is there a difference between male hair loss and hair loss for women? Yes and no. We think that when men grow bald, that that is a natural occurrence of aging. And when women grow balder or have thinner hair, that that is unnatural. That disease has the same terminology in both genders. We call it androgenetic alopecia, which means male hormone caused hair loss. It's just that the hair receptors with the testosterone receptors on them occur in men and women just in different frequencies and in different locations. And because men 
have more circulating testosterone on average <laughs> relative to women, they tend to have more of the problem than women. So when men lose their hair from male pattern baldness, it's a very stereotyped pattern. Same with women, it's very stereotyped, but it's different between men and women. So you're the one who suggested that we should talk about this because this is one of the top things that people come to see you about. Absolutely. Hair is so important to our self-esteem and to our culture, and it does help thermoregulate our temperature. And people get really distressed about losing their hair. You can lose 10 to 30% of your scalp hair and feel like you're almost bald because we are so sensitive to the density of our scalp hair. And what's normal density for one person may be very dense or very undense or low <laughs> density, if you sure. will for the next person. Is there anything that you can do? I would think that people say, well, what's the point of going to see a dermatologist? You can't keep the hair in there. Absolutely. It's the time to visit a dermatologist about hair loss is the day you notice that you've lost hair. So it is normal for people to lose 75 to 100 hairs a day. Usually that doesn't get on their radar screen until they think they've lost hair. So then what happens is you get very paranoid about the hair in the shower drain or about the hair in your hairbrush. And you don't realize that really those hairs are there every day because you keep losing them. So if you think that you're losing hair, come to the doctor as soon as possible because we have interventions that can help. For men, when you start to lose hair, it's the recession around the temples, mm -hmm. both sides. And then you kind of lose your frontal hairline and it creeps back. Then you get this, the hole in the crown of the head. Sure. And then they meet and then you lose your hair but keep the hairline on the back of your neck. For women, it's very, very different. Women only lose hair on the crown of the head. And they keep their hairline and they keep the sides in the back of the head. So their hairdresser will say, hmm your hair's looking a little thin or they'll part their hair differently or try to put it in an updo and they notice that the crown looks different. That is female patterned, male pattern baldness. So their part is wider and they don't have as much density on top. And oftentimes they can't see it because they maintain their frontal hairline. So if somebody tells you when you're a woman that the crown of your head seems a little less dense, you're losing hair. So what can you do to help us? So there are some over-the-counter things you can do. First of all, don't over-chemically treat your hair. Second of all, you can do over-the-counter Rogaine, extra strength. That is good for men and women, even though there's bottles marketed for men and women. Everybody can use the, quote, extra strength, which is marketed only for men. And you can apply that once to twice a day, and that will maintain the hair that you have, and it will help regrow 10 to 15% of the hair that you've lost. So the time to start Rogaine is yesterday. <laughs> and it's very easy to do. It's available in shampoo, it's available in foam, and it's available in solution. I personally prefer the solution for my patients because it directly gets to the scalp much easier than the foam, which usually gets absorbed by the hair and the whey, and the shampoo, which you wash in, but then you wash out. And who has time to shampoo their hair twice a day? In fact, we <laughs> tell people who are losing hair, don't over-traumatize your hair. Decrease shampooing to twice a week. Don't put in tight braids. Don't wear a lot of tight caps. Be very gentle with your hair. So you can start over-the-counter Rogaine. You can decrease the frequency that you wash. Then for men, there are pills that you can take that are available by prescription that were found serendipitously to help with hair loss. There are some concerns in the literature now about decreased sex drive. Um, we're not quite sure if that is mental or actual <laughs> because people who are losing their hair tend to be more self-conscious about their appearance and that affects their 
sexual desire. Mm -hmm. For women, there are hormone pills that are different from the pills we give men that help regulate their estrogen to testosterone balance, therefore shifting the balance more to estrogen, which also helps them maintain hair. Well, thank you, Dr. Davis, for answering our questions about hair loss and toenail fungal infections earlier in the program. And thanks for being our guest host this week. It's my pleasure, Tracy. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman. Our social media editor is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Dawn Davis. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.